Tommy's here. I'm here. We'll get started in a moment. But first, in a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, and cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. You're listening to The Sports Fix. The Sports Fix Thursday, Tommy, by phone. I'm here. Um, Thanks to Jason Lockenfora, who joined me yesterday uh, for uh, a nice visit. Uh, Lots of conversation, Tommy. I think, actually, I don't know if you listened to it. You probably didn't. But I thought it was some interesting conversation just about the Baltimore versus D.C. thing. you know, especially when it comes to sports fans. Uh, but if you missed that show yesterday, go back and, and listen to it. Some good stuff from Jason Lockenfora. And also, um, if you missed the radio sh- show this morning, Gary Clark was my guest for roughly a half hour. Um, you can get it on the Team980.com or the Team980 app. Um, but Gary Clark was great uh, this morning. Um, and we talked a lot about him going into the D.C. Sports Hall of Fame. But really, Tommy, I was talking to him about how he felt about not being in the NFL Hall of Fame. Which, you know, right. he's never... He, 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 he said something that I don't know that I've ever heard him say before. And I'm sure he has said it, I just didn't remember it. He said that when his career ended... He thought he was a lock for the Hall of Fame. He didn't even think it was a conversation. He thought he was an absolute lock for the Hall of Fame. And so his, you know, over the years, he's been very surprised that he isn't in it. But he recognizes that all the players that are in it, he thinks are deserving. And he didn't you know, make like a super case to be in it now, but he felt like when his career ended that he was a lock for the Hall of Fame. And you know, he had a stretch of his career in Washington where he was outrageously productive. Basically, you know, only Jerry Rice was exceeding him statistically, not to mention that Clark had big games and big moments, you know, big moments and big games um, over the course of the years. He, he always seemed to play his best when it mattered the most. Um, but I think one of the things about Clark's career is that, you know, his productive years in Washington, really it was eight seasons, and then he ended up in Phoenix, and he ended up in uh, Miami briefly to end his career, and his first year and a half, two seasons were in the USFL. If you take those seasons, and if he had had significant years in the NFL, he probably would have had numbers that they wouldn't have been able to ignore. If if he had you know two more seasons in the NFL versus the USFL, great player. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely a great player. I mean, you know, I think uh, is warranted to be in the Hall of Fame, but I don't think he's ever going to be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, no one's going to fight for Gary Clark to be in the Hall of Fame. Do you know uh, who makes the case for Redskins players now to be in the Hall of Fame? 
Uh, I do not. Is it still David Elfin? No, no, no. That was pretty <laughs> bad. That that was that was that was embarrassing. But, you know, what? The, the new one, the new one is much better. Why? Why was that embarrassing? Well, because he's a weasel. He's, he's an idiot and a weasel, and everybody knows. Okay, it. you've you've always uh, you've always had a thing for David Elfin, and I can't speak to to because you worked with him. You, you, he was he was truly a a coworker with you. Well, so. one of us worked and one of us whined. I do remember. I'll never forget that Super Bowl. You and I sitting on Radio Row. I'll never forget that. May I tell that story real quickly? Absolutely. We're sitting on Radio Row, and it's one of those Super Bowls. I have no idea where we were, but it was, you know, Thursday late in the week, and it was one of those, you know, conversations about, you know, Art Monk or Daryl. It was Art Monk or, or Joe Jacoby or Russ Grimm. So we were talking about one of those players and, and Hall of Fame, and are they going to get in this time, et cetera, et cetera. And David Elfin was making the case in front of the Hall of Fame committee on that following Saturday. I think it was like a late week, Thursday, Friday show, whatever. So David Elfin comes over and it's during a break. And he said, Kevin, if you want, I'll come on and I can talk about the presentation that I'm going to make for Jacoby or for Grimm. I forget who it was at the time. And I said, sure. Yeah. Come over here, sit down. And I looked over at whoever was producing. I said, can you get an extra set of headphones for David? And then I looked at you. And you were opposite of me on the other side. And you just, you, you gave this motion with your hand slitting your throat. Like, no, no, no. And I'm like, what's, what's wrong? What's going on? And I, I go, I lean over to you and you said, if he is on, I'm getting up and I'm walking off this. <laughs> I'm walking away from this table. Or you said something like, I, I will not speak. And, and, and I said, why? And he goes, he's not coming on, period. <laughs> and so I could tell that there was clearly something going on there and some, some history there. So, I, I, of course, I, I was not going to then, you know, I wasn't going to make it uncomfortable because you were, I don't know that I've ever seen you that upset. Yeah, that's not true. There have been other times. I don't want David Elfin yeah. to get the satisfaction that this was the most upset you've ever been because you've been upset before. But you were so adamant. And so I turned to David and said, you know what, David, we had something else planned for this segment. My fault. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. well, let's uh, – and I said maybe um, I'll talk to Chuck or whatever and maybe you can come on with uh, with Coach and, and Doc and Brian or something like that. You know, it's, and he said, oh, yeah, no problem. He didn't see the conversation we had. Or if he did, I, I don't I don't remember how – but the bottom line is he didn't come on. I've no. never – you were so – this was not your favorite person. Not not by a long shot. And I, I pers- personally, I've never really known David at, at all. You know, I don't really know him that well. But I know he was the guy in that room making the case for Monk and for Grimm and for Jacoby, right, for many years? Look at him. In spite of David Elfin, there were, you know, Daryl Green got in. I think Russ Grimm got in. And Art Monk got in while he was, while he was in there making the pitch. Uh, I don't know how that happened, but they did. Uh, and, I, you know, look, when so we he's... worked at the Times together, uh, and I blew right by him. In other words, I mean, basically, he had been there about seven or eight years before I got there. 
And, uh, you know, I just, I just blew by him. I was a columnist within a couple of years at the paper. And uh, at least two people who I know who I trust uh, implicitly uh, told me that this guy MF'd me, MF'd me to them That's right. for hours. I remember this now, yeah. A couple of times. Yeah. <clears throat> you know? Just, just like a train ride from New York back to Washington, one sports writer told me. All he did was, was take a knife out and stick it in your back over and over and over. Uh, that was funny that day. That and I was... did nothing to him. I did nothing to him except be better than him. That was my crime. All right, so who is so who's making the cases? Is it it's Larry then? Because Larry made the last it's case for Jacoby. It's Larry. It's Larry Michael. I huh. mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, you would think, you know, it's it's. I don't think that's a good idea. How's that? Why? Because it's an employee, or because? Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. You I know mean, what? What? Uh, you know, I I, was, well, I don't have a dictionary in front of me here. To come up with the best way to describe this. You know what? Let me help you. And actually, it won't do it justice, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a couple of things out. First of all, how odd is it having a team employee make the Hall of Fame pitches Super Bowl week for the, the players of their franchise? Is that, a, is that an unusual thing? I think it is an unusual thing. I don't want to say he's the only one. There may be one or two others. But it, that generally is not the case. Um, the other thing that I would say, I mean, I'm, I'm look, we we both nominated or nominated ourselves for the committee for the DC Sports Hall of Fame. We should be at least on the on the selection committee. You know who would make? I'm telling you right now, and I feel so confident about this. Not you know in the same way that I'm confident that I could be an, an NBA general manager or a clock management coach in the NFL. I actually think I could make a really good case and could really pitch it the right way and present it the right way as a media member, as someone who really, you know, in this, you know, in this market knows a lot about the Redskins and a lot about the history of the Redskins and a lot about the specific players and their careers. Um, And maybe it wouldn't be the same case somebody who was on the beat would make, uh, but, you know, I could pr- I, I could make a good presentation, and you know, Larry probably could do a lot of things that would be helpful and influential. But I think there are other people that could make a better case for the players. I think that's also what you're saying. I think Andy Poland would be a great selection. You you would pick Andy before you would pick me. I didn't say that. I just said I think he'd be a great selection. I'm asking you. I think you'd be a great selection too. Which one would you yeah. pick? Well, I think I think Andy would have a deeper history. Really? Yes. I'm not going to take offense to that because you know. Now I didn't say you wouldn't do a good job. I, I think you do a fine job. Um, Much better job than I would. How's that? Well, let me just say this. I, I think I would do a better job at presenting it. That's my feeling about having it organized and the kind of things that people would be looking for. Does Andy have a deeper historical knowledge of the Redskins than I do? 
It's damn close, Tommy. I, I would say that Andy goes back much further, no doubt. Andy well, that's has, usually valuable when it comes to it might be. Uh, the Hall of Fame. But when it comes to remembering these players and their careers and games and impact, my memory, I, I would put up against anybody else's when it comes to the era in which I've watched the Redskins. Well, then why, don't, why aren't you doing it? Hold on for a second. You hesitated on that, and you wouldn't answer that one either. What, you think Andy's got a better memory on, on those things than I do, than mine? No, I don't think he has a better memory. I mean, oh my Do you think God. he would be better? <laughs> we got nothing else to talk what? about today. Do you, do you think he would be better at presenting it? I think you'd both be equally as good. Do you think – I think that he might be better at compiling a lot of the information that I could then use to present it best. I think the two think of us Andy, together I, would be really good. I think, I think Andy could present it very well. No, you think Andy could present it better than I could present it. <laughs> Just a sliver, maybe. Wow. Just a little sliver. You know, you, you, you need to you – need see me back in my days of not broad, being in broadcasting and selling. All right, being cuz that's something that and I love Andy and he's a dear dear friend. Um and he's good at presenting things. Very good. And he's got an incredible historical knowledge of the Redskins. I think Andy would tell you that my Redskins knowledge historically is pretty damn close to his. I didn't say it wasn't. Is there anybody else, if you were ranking media members in town, that have the best Redskins, for the lack of a better description, Redskins historians, even though you've written books? Would it be Andy one, me two, or do you have somebody else you want to slip in in front of me? Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think he may have done this for the Hall of Fame. And I think he's retired now, so I don't think he does. I mean, I don't know if he ever did this for the Hall of Fame. I think he did. Len Shapiro, former sports writer and editor for the Washington Post. I'll give you the one. I think Len would be fine. I'll give you the one. And I actually um, I enjoy him on Twitter, actually, when it comes to just hardcore football stuff. I think Dan Daly really knows a lot about the Redskins. I think he knows yes. a lot about the NFL in general. He's very much yes. an NFL historian, but he's also a yes. Redskins historian. Yes, so I, like, I agree. He would be one that I would think of. And I don't know Dan very well, do you? You know what? Dan and I used to work together. I know you did. Washington Times. I know you did. And I thought we were friends and had a great relationship. Oh, boy, here it comes again. <laughs> All of a sudden, one day on Twitter, I noticed he blocked me. What? He blocked me. Seriously? Yes. Why? And I had. How, how do you know? I thought you did. I, I thought people didn't know when they got blocked. Well, I can't see his tweets. No, of course, people. No, you see, the gutless way to freeze people out is to mute them. Then they don't know. The courageous way is to block them. Then they do know. Got so, it. So, yes, I knew. I've not done either went... one. Not okay. even one well, time. Dan, well, Dan had blocked me 
God only knows why. Really? I have, I have no idea why. Do you know, now that you say that, God, I hate to say that if I'm wrong, but whatever, it's, it's a podcast. Um, I think I reached out to him a while back to ask him to be on the show. I, I know I did. And I never heard back from him. Now, that could be because I had the wrong number, or maybe I texted, or maybe he didn't get the message, or whatever. But I think I was doing the show with you at the time. <laughs> Check your phone. See if you can read his tweets. Uh, I Dan know, Daly on sports. Oh, I know I can read his tweets. I follow him. Okay. On Twitter. I, I follow him on twi- Twitter, and, and, I, and I read his tweets. You know, he, he does a lot of, like, you know, recently he's been doing a lot of football research and football historical stuff. Yes. I, I read something just the other day. He was doing something on players who had had kickoff returns in the postseason, which was, you know, that sort of stuff, like, interests me, you know. And, and, um, Listen, he wrote, he wrote a book uh, with another sports writer who was from the Times before my time called The Pro Football Chronicles. Uh, which I highly recommend if you can find it used. Wrote it a long time. He wrote another one after that that was pretty good. I forget the exact title of it. But the Pro Football Chronicles is one of the best football books I've ever read. It and do- he was the co-author. It does not surprise me. It doesn't surprise me. Um, okay, so you got Andy. And- but, but, he, but he blocked me. I think he'd be perfect for that. What? But yeah. Why? Why did I don't he? Know why why he did he? Blo- you have no idea why he blocked you. I have no idea. I would tell you if I did something that insulted him because I don't particularly give a shit, you right. know. But I didn't do anything. He just <laughs> must have thought I was an idiot. Look, I mean, you. I guarantee you, there are people you have blocked that are like, "Why did Tommy block me?" You block a lot of people, I've heard. Oh, I, I block a ton of people. It's my Twitter account. It's not theirs. <laughs> oh, I hate social media right now. It is an insane <laughs> asylum out there. It, it, I, I know th- that's interesting to me, but when you said that, like, I am almost positive that I reached out to him maybe more than once and asked him to be on the show. And I think at the time he was still, you know, he doesn't write for anybody any, anymore. Am I correct on that? I think that's true. Yeah. I don't know what he's doing these days, but he doesn't write for anybody that I know. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, I, I've, always, I've always thought he was really like one of the sharp guys because, you know, for the most part, a lot of the writers who, of course, you know, basically thumb their nose at people on sports talk radio as if it's, you know, some sort of sandbox for uh, the uneducated. Um, I over Let the, it all out, Kevin. Oh, well, Let uh, it all out. Over baby. the years, over the years, and you know this, there are there, there have been columnists and reporters in the market that I, that I really like and I respect, but uh, for the most part, I have found that the, the people that I think know more about some of these sports and maybe it's just because they've got a bigger form or a longer form, you know, long form radio, the whole thing are people on radio. It's just what I've, that's been my personal observation over the years, but I don't, anyway, I'm, I'm sorry, Dan da- Daly blocked you. He just doesn't know the man that I know. <laughs> <laughs> and right, let so, me just end this with 
God bless Larry Michael. <laughs> I, I look as a Redskin fan. I don't, and and I, I, it's not that I'd have a major problem with it, but I, I think that there's probably a better presenter. You know, and one that's not tied to the organization as an employee that would make more sense. You know, the other well, part apparently of Apparently, Dan, Dan Snyder is, is, is on the board of directors of the uh, Hall of Fame. I mean, what little power he has seems to be channeled into the Hall of Fame. He's, he's, on, uh, he's on some kind of bo- couple of maybe board of directors connected to the Hall of Fame. I mean, you know, you'd like to have him, you know, on some kind of powerful owner's committee or something like that if you're a Redskins fan. But he does have some power with, within the Hall of Fame, and I think Bruce Allen helped him achieve that. Uh, so, you know, that's why Larry's in there, because he's Dan's guy. Okay. I mean, he is, okay, can, can we agree on that? He's Dan's guy? Yes. Okay. And at this point, is Larry Ofer... Is Jacoby the only person he's presented? No, no. I, you know what? Uh, he I can't say for sure. Why do you think he? I, 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 do you I think, think he made Russ right. Grimm's? Think, Did he make Russ Grimm's? No, I pitch? think that was that was that was the miracle of Elfin. <laughs> oh God, you're the worst. Um. Anyway, back to Gary Clark. <laughs> um. Gary, there is a case for Gary Clark. It's not an overwhelming case. And the fact that he's not in there has never really burned me as a, you know, as a diehard Redskin fan. And by the way, as a huge Gary Clark fan, I don't know that he is totally deserving of the Hall of Fame. The case that can be made is that there are guys in the Hall of Fame that he was just as good as, if not better, and the numbers are better as well. Now, sometimes you get into that non-passing era and, you know, you start comparing guys like Bolitnikoff to Gary Clark and others that came before, you know, uh, teams started opening it up. And Gary Clark wasn't necessarily part of the true you know, passing explosion era either. But, you know, there are guys like Stallworth and Michael Irvin, who, you know, was really considered to be sort of a lock as a Hall of Famer. And Clark's numbers are right there with his. Um, They're just guys there, Andre Reed, Stallworth. You know, Lynn Swan is, to me, one of those exceptional cases in that his career was super short. His numbers are paltry compared to the rest of, of the Hall of Famers. But if you watched Lynn Swan, just like if you watch Gail Sayers during that shortened career, and I'm not saying Swan was the same as a receiver that Sayers was as a running back, but Swan was a great receiver and a Hall of Fame receiver, even though the career was short, the injuries were significant, and the numbers aren't anywhere near sort of a lot of the other Hall of Famers. I, Lynn Swan was a better receiver than John Stallworth, in my view. You agree with that? Yes, I do. But And so Stallworth's numbers really dwarf Swan's numbers, um, you know, in terms of receptions and yards. Um, but but Swan was brilliant over a short period of time. Swan's not uh, Gail Sayers is not the comp. Gail Sayers was much a much better Sherlock Hall of Fame kind of guy than Lynn Swan is a, was was as a receiver. But I think Lynn Swan's a Hall of Fame receiver. I agree, absolutely. Anyway, uh, 
If you look at here, here's the two words that you want for a presenter in that room: respect and credibility. I'll just leave it at that. Ooh, that's what you don't think I have. No, <laughs> I didn't say you wouldn't be good at it. Hold on for a second. I just said I think Andy would be a a a, 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 a like a beard hair better. I mean, it's really close. I don't think, I didn't see, see, don't be so sensitive, Sonny. I didn't say you couldn't do a great job at it. If they, if I got, if I got picked to do it, would you be going behind my back saying, no, they got the wrong guy? Andy would be much better? (laughs) No, I didn't say much better. You just say, I, I said what you wanted me to say. You pushed <laughs> me to make a decision, and I did. Um, but that, well, it's not the same as saying you couldn't do it. Andy, you could do it. But there's no doubt in your mind that Andy would bring forth much more respect and credibility to the room. You see, much more respect. It's, it's, it's no wonder you make a living on radio. <laughs> much more respect. Uh, more respect. Um, no, not no, the same level of respect. Okay. All right. All right, Miss. Okay. All right, Mister. Look it. Um. <laughs> you notice I never said me. You know what the truth is. Here, here, here's the truth. Andy would Andy would do a phenomenal job. He would do a phenomenal job. And if Andy ever got picked to do it, I would call Andy up and I would say. You know what? I'm so happy you're doing it. it, This is a much better choice than anybody that's been doing it over the years. And if you need my help, I'd be glad to give it. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And and, and slip it under your breath, and I could do it better. (laughs) No. Andy would be great. And Andy's been around much longer, so much longer. You know, um, I talked this morning about Ken Beatrice because we spent some time talking about him in Sports Talk Radio the other day on the podcast. And you know, uh, like the, tr- it really like on sports talk radio in DC, it would be if, if, the, if there were, they were to put somebody else in be- besides Ken Beatrice, it'd be the junkies or Andy. That would be the list. Nobody else would well, be in consideration. I mean, the sports listen, fix, the sports fix would get some due respect. No, seriously. Well, though. Since we're starting the hall of fame. <laughs> we're the first two in. We're, we're starting the sports talk radio hall of fame. Yes, DC Sports Talk Radio Hall of Fame. <laughs> you and I are are, are the are the first class. We would have. Then we'll take care of everybody else. Yeah, the selection committee selected themselves for the inaugural uh, class of Sports Talk yes. Radio Hall of Famers. No, I mean, and, and here's, here's the here's the other thing about the Pro Football Hall of Fame. It's a screwed up way to do it. I mean, for well, all the yes. criticism about the Baseball Hall of Fame. Baseball writers get a ballot sent to them in the mail. They fill it out. They send it back. No one has to stand in a room secretly like a car salesman and make a sales pitch. You know, such a good point. I know that this is repetitive and we've had this conversation before, but just think about that, that, they, that Joe Jacoby is reliant on someone to make the case for him in a room of people that have done their own research, I'm sure, but are also potentially influenced one way or other or the other by the presenter. That that doesn't make any sense. The career no, is the it's presentation. A, it's a ridiculous way to do it. Yeah, I agree with that. 
I mean, if you're in that room and you're a voter, then you you need to do your own work. You need to have been a part of of that uh, of that era. And it, I mean, when you're when when Joe Jacoby comes up, there should be writers in the room or former players in the room, former coaches in the room, his contemporaries, and that should be the group of people. And they should be doing their own research. I mean, they can be presented with a, you know, a two-sheeter of of data, but if you, I mean, I how many times do you would you guess that you're sitting in that room on Saturday as a Hall of Fame voter and a presenter makes the case and you're like, "Oh my god." That's the worst presentation I've ever seen. If if poor, you know, um, Drew Pearson only knew what they, you know, how this was so completely disorganized and poorly presented, it, it, it would be influential, I would think. That said, I, I would give, I don't, I know some of the people in that room, a handful. I don't, I don't know the majority, but given the responsibility they have, I find it hard to believe that everybody who in that room would not have done their own research on all the candidates in front of them. Very in-depth research. Yeah. Well, I, I mean that would be I certainly that, that would. would be hard for me to believe. I certainly would. Um yeah. you I mean you've been how long have you been a Hall of Fame baseball voter again? I forget. Uh since 2003. Okay. 17 years. All right, let me um, let me tell you about Roman. If you were to guess on average how many days people in the U.S. have to wait to see a doctor, what would you say? A week maybe? Actually, on average, people have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities. You know what, Tommy? Just a, as an aside, that's a long time. You know, If you're not feeling well and you need to see a doctor, the average amount of time is 30 days. Clearly, if you have an acute situation, you get in much sooner with most doctor's offices. If you're trying to get a physical set up, like an annual physical, you probably have to wait 30 days. That's a long time to see a doctor. Doctors that busy? I guess they are. Uh, basically a month is how long you have to wait. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. You don't want to have to wait 29 days. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides the treatment's right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you've got questions or just want to want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com, use my promo code SHEEHAN, S-H-E-E-H-A-N, for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's Get roman.com promo code sheehan for a free online visit and free two-day shipping all right uh from the from the category of tommy may have been right again this story from adrian wojnarowski late uh last night about the nba's return 
I'll read uh, the first few paragraphs quickly. As a, as a faction of NBA players hold conference calls to discuss uncertainty about restarting the season in the Orlando, Florida bubble, the NBA and National Basketball Players Association are agreeing on a plan that would allow players to stay home without consequences. There were 40 to 50 players on conference calls over the past 24 hours, writes Wojnarowski, discussing a number of concerns centered on the restart in Orlando, but there's been no formal petitioning yet to the NBA Players Association from any group wanting out of the 22-team resumption. However, players have started to come to terms with the restrictive and isolated nature of the Orlando bubble, including no visitors until the first until after the first round of the playoffs, nearly seven weeks after the opening of mid-July training camp. There's been increased dialogue about the prudence of restarting the season for a number of players, especially those on non-championship contenders. Executives and coaches around the NBA have had significant concerns about how players will adapt to an environment environment unlike any they've ever experienced and how those hurdles could impact the sustained competitive drive for teams. Many have worried, too, especially on teams that aren't title contenders, whether some players will start to seek avenues to bypass the resumption altogether. Players are citing a number of concerns, including family situations, the inability to leave the Disney World Resort campus, the coronavirus pandemic, and the implications surrounding the emergence of social justice causes in the country. Participants in Orlando, including players, will not be allowed to leave the bubble environment without a 10-day quarantine upon their return to the Disney grounds. That's from the story written by Adrian Wojnarowski. So, netting it out, There are players, 40 to 50 of them potentially, that are concerned about a number of things and may want to opt out completely. And I guarantee those are discussions that took place at their home. I mean, look, this is something that, that, you know, baseball's going through this argument about money. And I always think that, always thought that everybody was downplaying the, the family factor and the fear factor, once you get past the money and baseball, I think it'll be worse. I think you'll have more players that'll want to bow out. So I just think, I always thought this was going to be an issue. I mean, because, uh, I mean, if you're married uh, and you've got young kids, uh, you know how these discussions will go. Here's this. Here's the one thing that I think about in all of this. So, um, this is not a situation when Wojnarowski writes that the players can stay home without consequences. Well, that's you know without being suspended or punished or fined, but they will not get paid. He updated this story uh, early this morning. Players deciding against the Orlando resumption would not be paid for missed games. Uh, The league already started withholding 25% of players' paychecks on June 15th because of the force majeure provision in the collective bargaining agreement that will repay teams for canceled games. So, and remember, we did hear, um, uh, we heard from an NBA player, like a a big-time team representative, and I'm trying to think of who it was. Uh, I think it was, was it Lillard or McCollum? One of those two. I think it was C.J. McCollum out in Portland. 
had said that he estimated amazingly that three quarters of the league lives paycheck to paycheck. That's unbelievable to consider because the average salary, and I went back and looked at it at the time, is like over $7 million a year. The minimum is like 800000 a year, between eight and 900000 a year. Um, I, I just, of course, if somebody is vulnerable because of an underlying illness, I could see it. Are they going to be upset to leave their families for a significant period of time? Yes. I just can't imagine that these players are going to give up that kind of money if they if the chances of them, them getting seriously ill is basically slim and none. Well, here's the thing. I think I think players will go along and then quit at one point during this, during this whole thing. They'll just say, "Screw this. I'm not getting locked with Mickey and Minnie in here for 3 months. I'm going home." Or else they'll hear it from their family. You need to come home. You know, somebody's sick. And you're, you're at Disney World playing basketball. For a lot of money. Well, still, I just think, again, this is why I don't think any of these seasons that are going to restart are going to finish. For all kinds of personal complicated reasons due to this virus. So there are a couple of things here. Number one. Let's let's differentiate between the player that says he doesn't want to go to Orlando for between seven weeks and maybe 14 weeks um, because he doesn't want to be away from home for that long. He doesn't want to be confined to one city um, versus the player who's legitimately fearful of the virus and isn't confident in the protocols and policies that the league's put in place to create a safe environment. Because the two are different. You agree, right? Oh, n- not as much as you think. The, the player who doesn't want to leave his family for three and a half months, uh, it's, which, let's, let's, say, let's say no matter what you think about the epidemic, about, about the pandemic, okay, would you feel good about leaving your wife and kids for three and a half months during a pandemic? At this point? Much more so than in March. Yes, but, w- would not. But I, I would miss them terribly. That would be for me. I'm that would be the bigger thing. I know them. you're not. I know I'm you're not. About, the, the, to answer your question, the answer is no. Really, I would. I wouldn't. Three, three and a half months. Yeah. Uh, you know, when, when there's still you know thousands of people dying from this thing. Now I know a lot of them. We're talking about elderly people, people with underlying disorders and stuff. But again, you know, it's like the argument uh, that I forget who it was put out there. You know, well, you know, if, if, if 3,000 de- people a day are dying, uh, half of them are, are 60 and over and in nursing homes. Okay, so let's cut that to half. Okay, let's say if there were 1,500 rabid dogs, you know, roaming the streets. How good would you feel about going out there and taking a walk? Yeah. Just because your chances were reduced. Tommy, Tommy. You don't want to win that lottery. This audience that we're talking about, you're asking me the question, I I would hope, in context of me being 25 years old with a super young family as an NBA player. Uh, at At this point... 
you know, five, it'll be five months into it nearly, certainly four months plus into it, um, based on what we know today on June 11th, uh, the only thing that would tug at me would be, I don't want to be away from my kids, my wife and kids for that long, and they can't come here to see me. And even though I'll go on a West Coast road trip for 10 days sometimes, this is going to be potentially three months you know, two months, whatever it'll be. Let's see, August, September, October. If I if I if I'm on the team that goes to the NBA Finals, it could be three months. That would really be the number one thing that I would have an issue with. Okay, well, but, that would be you. I think for these players, the pandemic fear is double that. Why? Leaving their family behind during a pandemic, but their That's families, the are, but their families aren't at risk based on the likely ages of wife and children. I, I get that. So you know, not what? to not to mention it's okay. It's okay, not to mention honey. that they've... it's okay, honey. Don't worry about don't worry about the pandemic. You're pro- you're not at risk. You're probably not going to get it. Goodbye. That's not going to work. Oh uh, well, that's that's really not the way the conversation would go. It, it, first of all, they live in you know significant affluence. The ability to easily socially distance, as they've probably been doing now, you know, hunkering down with families with the uh, tons of luxury uh, in those situations. So I'm not leaving my wife and kids in, you know, in, in a in a crowded apartment building in in the Bronx, you know, where we've got 15 people in one, you know, two bedroom or one bedroom efficiency. This is not a huge risk for an NBA player's family as the NBA player leaves to go play in Orlando. But why? Why are they social distancing and living in isolation? Well, be- why? Well, because like everybody, at least for the first month or two, and maybe they aren't doing it nearly as much anymore. But for those first two months, there was a lot that was unknown, and everybody but, but was fearful to is, a certain degree. Are they still doing it now? I bet they're doing it a lot less, just like everybody okay, is. So- so you think they're doing it a lot less. So, so it doesn't matter. So this whole premise you talk about, about living in isolation and social distancing, really isn't relevant because they're not doing it anymore. The, the point is, if I'm sitting there having the conversation with my wife and kids, what I know now is I know that unless my wife has some sort of underlying disease at 26 years old, um, and my you know three kids who are six, four, and two, um, and they're really not at risk based on what we know. Um, they're really not at risk. And even if they're out and about and they're outside and they're in the neighborhood or they go to the supermarket and they're wearing masks and they're doing things smart, they're really not at risk at all. A couple of months ago, I wasn't so sure. And like everybody else, I was hunkering down and we were watching movies and we were watching TV shows and we were doing some stuff with the kids and arts and crafts and all that. And then we, we, we had a time of it. We were on Zoom calls with family members and friends. We were having a time of it as as a as a family that that lives in in primary you know in primarily luxurious situations. It, now I've got a chance to go back and resume my career on a short sprint that may be seven weeks, might be fourteen weeks, somewhere in that range, and I'm going to feel a lot more comfortable with respect to the pandemic and leaving my family. But on their how own. many how many players are not going to feel that way? Well, a couple at least. It certainly sounds well, like there are a few, but yes. but but you but this story says that there are there this story says that it's more than just about families in the pandemic. 
You know, it's, it's about being that long away from their family. It's about for themselves being essentially, you know, boxed into this one hub city, this one hub area for a long period of time, which, by the way, would get to feel a little claustrophobic at some point. You know, and, I get, I, and I think that gets added on to the fear of leaving their family for that amount of time during a pandemic. That's normal. That's a normal reaction. The way you're describing it is an abnormal reaction. No, I didn't say oh, it's, it's abnormal. No but it would but but of the players that decide not to go through with this, I don't think that the leading reason will be that they fear they're going to get sick or they fear that their family's going to get sick while they're gone. But it's it's part of the decision making. That that under any other circumstances would 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 not come into play. I just think I just think you're going to have enough players and enough players' wives who are going to think that way that are going to make this fall apart. Not if you n- not if you've got players in. You know, I would love to know what truly living paycheck to paycheck means for seventy five percent of the players because it just doesn't seem possible to me. But they've if, made but their if you money have... already for this year, Kevin. No, the league started withholding 25% of their paychecks on June 15th. So they're not getting get paid that. anymore. But 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 they but but, I, but they made their money. Right. That's true. It was almost over. That's true. That is a good point. That's the, that's a fair point that they this is not the beginning of a baseball season where they haven't gotten right. paid dime one because they haven't played game one. Um yeah. And, and, you know, for the teams at the bottom of the standings, like the Wizards or, you know, the positions in the West where they really don't have a chance legitimately to get into the postseason, it really is a bit of a waste of time. And they've got to go for training camp and the whole thing. I What I'm saying to you, Tommy, is that I don't think for these super young families and super healthy families, and I'm... Uh, obviously, I don't know what percentage of. I'm guessing that it's a significant majority of NBA families are young and healthy and in the lowest risk category. I don't think it's that the virus as much as it would be. We're not going to have our husband and our father, and for the father, I'm not going to have my wife and my kids for potentially three months. Because I remember what I was like when my kids were young and I was traveling a lot. And I've told you this, for a year and a half, I'd, I'd left Monday morning, went up to Boston, came back on Friday. That was painful. And that was five days. Painful. I hated being away from them for, for work-related reasons for five days. I, I missed them terribly, especially when they were young. Um, and most of these NBA players, if they have kids, they're super young. If they have wives and kids, everybody's young. And it's, you know, that point in, in sort of a family's, um, you know, evolution. I, I think that that would be a big part of it. I think when uh, – I'd like, you know, Wojnarowski, they should do a little bit more about the players that, that are, you know, showing but, – but what, what, here's the problem with this. That won't be an answer that will fly with teams and fans. If you're legitimately fearful of getting the virus, then that's an, th- that is something, to your point, that I think people would accept more. I, I, so to answer your earlier question, I don't think it's abnormal if people feel that way. I think that it is 
also very normal for people to want to get out of this because they don't want to be away from their families that much. Um, But the answer that isn't going to fly with fans and maybe even teammates and front offices is going to be, yeah, I don't want to be away from my family that long. Obviously, I think that that's a big part of it. I just think the circumstances that are dictating them uh, being away from their family that long also come into play in in the fear at home. Uh, the fear of, let's say, leaving you know your wife with two or three kids at home uh, who's still dealing with social isolation. Right. I'm sure that's part of it too. But you didn't you didn't answer what I just said. The players that try to get out of it because they are concerned about being away from their families and it's not necessarily virus related, but more, you know, tugging at the heartstrings related. I don't think that's going to be viewed very favorably by teammates and teams and fans. I think I I don't think they care. Yeah. I mean, NBA players, what do they care? They don't care. Yeah. A lot of NBA players at protests. Be interesting if if those players that were at protests over the last couple of weeks then all of a sudden said they didn't want to leave their families because they're afraid of the virus. <laughs> well, there's a lot of people in that in that boat. That would be a, a little bit hypocrite. Uh, no, I can't go to Orlando. I'm not I I'm I'm really concerned about catching the virus and I don't want my family catching it while I'm away. Um, well, there's a lot of people who were out there side by side in the streets. Yes. Who are now going back to, you know, social uh, distancing. Uh, there's a lot of people in that boat. Right. We'll see what happens here. Uh, it's 40 to 50 players, 22 teams. That's 40 to 50 out of, you know, call it 300 when all is said and done. Um, that's that's a lot of players. That's a, yeah, bit, that's a big than, percentage. More than 10%. <laughs> so... If if that if that's the case that 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 will be interesting. And as far as the pay thing, that's a really good point. They've already been paid, um, and if they're gonna if they can do this without consequence, meaning fines, you know, or some sort of punishment, um, it's going to be hard to incent them. Even though people will say, "Hey, uh, this is good for America. This is great for people to have sports start back up." There, they may not care um, about that. Um, anyway. Uh, what did I want to get to next? Oh, I sent you the list, and I talked about this on the show this morning. CBSSports.com did the top 15 shooters in NBA history. And the number one shooter of all time was your favorite guy, Just Shoot It, Steph Curry. And this is what Brad Botkin from CBSSports.com wrote about Curry. He wrote, this is not even a debate. Curry is the sixth most accurate three-point shooter in league history at over 43% for his career, which is just a ridiculous number when you consider the volume and difficulty of his shots. And Curry isn't just a three-point shooter. He'll kill you from mid-range with floaters and runners off the dribble, off the catch, and he's one of the best off-ball movers to ever play. He has every shot in the bag. Quite simply, Curry has simply reshaped the way the game's been played – 
and redefine the standard of truly great shooting. His ability to shoot off the dribble with easy range to 30-plus feet has warped floor spacing and detonated defensive strategies beyond anything anyone would have recognized before he came around. For my money, Curry's 2015-2016 season, where he was the unanimous MVP and he made 402 three-pointers converting on this is actually amazing converting on 45 percent of them has never been and might well never be topped uh this is not even a debate sports uh, cbssports.com on the greatest shooter of all time steph curry agree or disagree i look i think one thing i've always conceded he did change the game I mean, he did change the game, and I can't argue with him as the best shooter uh, in the history of the game because he was so good that he literally changed the way the game is played. So, I mean, I don't particularly have a problem with that. It's so hard to compare errors, uh, particularly when it comes to shooting. But, uh, I mean, even the comparable great shooters of the past I don't think any of them can say they're better than Steph Curry. It's not even close for me. He's the best shooter I've ever seen. And the reason for it, and we've had these conversations over the years, and in the early days, really, of watching guys start to shoot further and further back, you know, four feet, six feet, eight feet, ten feet behind the three-point line, like it was nothing. And that, without question, changed the game. And Curry really was the first to consistently be a guy that would pull up from 30, uh, 30 feet plus, sometimes just inside half court on a fast break. We've seen that before. And it wasn't even considered unusual after a while. You know, these were shots that he was taking that, you know, in your era of playing for the Knicks were considered terrible shots, terrible shot <laughs> selection. And Steph Curry, as the writer um, for CBS Sports wrote, he totally warped floor spacing. And that's, that's basketball. That's offensive basketball. If you ever go watch any good coach coach a practice, you know, offensively it's about your spacing. You know, it's, it's making sure that you're not super close to your uh, teammate. You want the defense to cover more ground, not less ground. It's harder to cover more ground than it is to cover less ground. That's why basketball coaches you'll hear all the time, spacing, spacing, spacing. You know, now there is you know, ball screens where, uh, you know, you're, you're getting close to a teammate. Um, there are, you know, off ball screens, but for the most part, spacing is everything. And the spacing was changed with Curry because all of a sudden, not only Curry, but guys like Lillard and guys like Clay Thompson started pulling up from 30 plus feet. Now you got to go out to 30, 35 feet to guard a guy, which leaves behind that defender, all of that open floor. And it was really, it's been fascinating to watch. I know it's not your favorite thing, but it's changed the game. There's no doubt about it. It's why you end up with a lot of threes and a lot of layups. Because as they run at the three-point shooter, he's going by with all that open space to the rim. Um, but uh, 
In terms of just the ability to shoot it, to shoot it with quick release, to shoot it with accuracy, to shoot it in so many different ways, as the writer described, you know, the incredible range from the three-point line, the incredible mid-range game, the floaters, the feel around the rim in traffic. Um, he's the greatest shooter that I've ever seen. And I, I, I mentioned, I agree. I've mentioned this before too, Tommy, and I know that you've said Maravich. Um, he's the best combined shooter and ball handler in one body that I've ever watched. I didn't see Maravich in his prime, so I can't speak to Maravich in his prime. Isaiah would have been the one had three-point shooting been more prevalent, been more accepted, long-range three-point shooting. I think Isaiah's ball handling, and he was a wizard as a ball handler, and he was a really good shooter too. I think Isaiah would be the the other guy that would be comparable to Curry. The problem was is Isaiah didn't live in that era of just shooting it, you know, of, of pulling right. up from thirty, you know, thirty feet and and draining threes. Um, but Curry to me, best shooter of all time. Now, number two on this list, I definitely have a debate because my number two is very clear in my mind who I think, you know, and I, I'm not even going to use statistics to back it up. It's just in in terms of watching NBA basketball over my lifetime. Number two on this list is Clay Thompson. Number three is Ray Allen. Four is Larry Bird. And five is Reggie Miller. Reggie Miller is my number two. Reggie Miller was a phenomenal shooter with a perfect stroke. And he could shoot it you know, off of a screen, catch and shoot better than any player I've ever watched in NBA history. Reggie Miller is one of the all-time greatest, too, at moving without the ball and setting up screens to get open to shoot that jump shot. You know, is he, he, he also had the super quick release like Steph Curry did. But Curry, the only – Curry's number one. Reggie Miller, for me, is number two. I can't argue with that, Kevin. Well, I need I some argument. Agree. It's no fun no, when you sorry. argue with I, me. I, I, it's no fun when you when you ba- when you bow down and say you're right again. Yeah. I hate that. Well, I mean, it's, look, it's not like you're discovering plutonium here. <laughs> well, okay. Would name the show we name the show we've ever had where we were actually in the midst of discovering plutonium. Well, well, I mean, you're, you're not walking a plank on Steph Curry and Reggie Miller as your top two shooters of all time. Compared I mean, to most this, of the conversation. This is not going to shock and amaze anybody. <laughs> Compared to most of the conversations we've had over the years, this is damn sophisticated. <laughs> uh, Larry Bird's up there. Uh, Ray Allen's a great all-time shooter. Durant's eight on this list behind Corver, who came in at six, and Nash, who came in at seven. Durant should be higher on this list. Um, Dirk is nine. Steve Kerr, ten. J.J. Redick, eleven. Uh, Pages Stoyakovich, 12. You know, the list, for one thing, the list has lost all historic perspective. I mean, once you get past the first two or three, I mean, it's really an unfair list. I mean, done by some child who, I'm, I'm betting, No, it's you know, multiple children. Watch, yeah, well, whatever. I mean, come on. I mean, you, you're going to tell me that Oscar Robinson uh, isn't on that list? This is what I wanted. Took you a while to get into the conversations. Well, are, are you going to mention? Are you going to mention three. Clyde Frazier, Rick Barry? No, no. Well, uh, Rick Barry, uh, 
you know, Dale Ellis. Dale Ellis was a great shooter. Dale Remember Ellis Dale was. Ellis? Of course. Chuck, uh, Brett, Chuck Person. Brad Davis. Another great shooter. Which uh, which Brad Davis? The Brad Davis who played for the uh, Mavericks. Yeah, from, from Maryland. You think Brad Davis yeah. was a great shooter? 51% from the field, 83% from the foul line. Uh, yeah, but you know Brad That's Davis. Pretty good for his time. Brad Davis was a great player at Maryland. Um, for, you know, for lefty, Brad Davis wasn't known as a shooter at Maryland. He became he was, a good scorer. I wouldn't call him a great, a great shooter. shooter. Well, I, tell you I would what, call him a good scorer. Off, when you get off this, uh, you know, this podcast we do, why don't you do a little research on your boy? And then come back to me. Okay. The, the percentage isn't it, the the percent. I'm talking about pure shooters. Brad Davis didn't have a pure stroke, and he was a, he was a great player and he was a good scorer, you know, and was great on the fast break. Phenomenal he on the a, fast break. He's one of the best shooters that uh, uh, of his time. Yeah, in the, the league. The, I, I, the, that that's a stretch for me. But go ahead. Who else do you want to mention? Freddie Brown. Oh, there we go. My boy. <laughs> I threw him out on the radio this morning to one of my callers. I said, I bet you've never heard of Fred Downtown Brown, have you? But go back and watch <laughs> some of Freddie Brown shooting from, you know, the uh, the non-autonomous zone the in Seattle. Yeah. Oh my God! He if they, he was bombing them, and he was one of those guys on the fast break that would. He was ahead of his time. He would pull up on the fast break from twenty five feet and not even think about it. And Lenny Wilkins would say, "That's fine with me." That's Freddie Downtown Brown off the bench. And Tommy, I don't know that he ever started. I always remember him coming off the bench. Am I right about that or not? I don't know. I don't know if that's the case or not. I'm trying to think who the guards were. For those Seattle teams. Well, I can tell you, Gus Williams and Dennis Johnson were the starters on their championship teams with Freddie Brown coming right. off the bench. I just don't know if he started at another time in his career. Yeah. Um, uh, Ka- Calvin Murphy. Calvin Murphy is one of the great free throw shooters ever. And one of the great shooters. He was a good. He was, he was, he's a good shooter. Yeah. Allen Houston. Allen Houston, excellent, excellent shooter, excellent shooter, yeah. Allen Houston. So in other words, I mean, they're, 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 they're I thought you were going to go further I, I, back. I, I mean, Freddie Brown's going back. You got me into the seventies. Allen Houston, we're into the nineties. Glenn Rice is one of the greatest pure shooters ever in terms of the stroke. Everything about it was perfect. Um, Steve Kerr's on this list. Steve Kerr could really shoot it. Larry Bird is definitely, you know. It should be on this list. And the thing about Bird and Reddick and Miller, there were certain guys that had not only the perfect stroke, but were perfect in every part of the shooting operation. Steph Curry has an incredible stroke, but he shoots it at a lot of different angles, depending on how he's, you know, the situation he's in. Whereas Larry Bird, Reggie Miller, J.J. Reddick, I'm just thinking about guys. They catch it. They, there's there's a perfect square up, perfect elbow extension, follow through the whole thing. Um, I have watched some highlights on Maravich before. He did have a great stroke, a great stroke. But there wasn't an emphasis on long range shooting back no. then. No, he averaged forty four points a game uh, during a three year college career when there was no three point shot. Right. 
You mentioned Dale Ellis, Chuck Person, you know, a lot of those guys. I mean, just Kyle Corver in recent years, you know, and Corver's a bigger dude, but my God, he is a great shooter. You know, and just thinking about, um, you know, Phil Chenier was a great shooter. Yes. Phil Chenier was was a phenomenal shooter. Mark Price was a great shooter. You know who had. What What about Bradley Beal? Bradley Beal is a great shooter. He really yeah. is. I mean, perfect form and really has developed range. And, and by the way, can shoot it from every – he's a really good mid, mid-range mid shooter too. Um, oh, you just made me forget who I was going to mention. Oh, in terms of Bullets Wizards history, you know who was a – Gil could really shoot it. You know who had picture-perfect shooting form and was a very good NBA shooter – was Jeff Malone. It, it, yes. Jeff Malone started his career here, finished it in uh, in Utah, playing on some very good Utah teams. Didn't play on great teams here necessarily. Um, but Jeff Malone was had just the perfect stroke. There, there's a year um, in Utah where I'm pretty sure he shot well over 50% from the field, which is ridiculous. And it's not because he was taking four shots a game. Uh, let me pull up his thing here because I wanted to – here it is. Uh, 1991-92, Jeff Malone averaged 17 shots a game basically, shot 51% from the floor. Now back then, even when Jeff Malone came around, not a big emphasis on three-point shooting, and he did not shoot a lot of threes at all, um, which is actually surprising. You know, I'm looking at his three-point numbers. I'm actually very surprised at how few threes Jeff Malone shot. Great mid-range shooter um, and was, you know, in that backcourt in Utah in in some of their uh, playoff years. This is before they got to the finals and faced Jordan, but they had some good teams on those Utah teams that had guys uh, like um, uh, Stockton and um, um, Eaton. That was the big center. That's I was just trying to come up with. Mark Eaton. Yeah, yeah, big Mark Eaton was a big part of those teams that he was on. Uh, anyway, um, what about your boy, Tim Legler? Legler's a pure, pure stroke. Great shooter. Great shooter. I mean, you know, I had him on the, on radio maybe a month ago and it was one of those, um, long (laughs) interviews that we're now able to do here during this stretch. And, um, and I, and I mentioned to him, it was during the last dance, uh, that he was watching. And I said, you know, Steve Kerr, John Paxson, you could have easily been either one of those two guys. Do you ever think about that? And he said, of course. And he said, you know, most people don't necessarily realize that. But for a lot of shooters in particular, it's the position more than any other in basketball that you just need to land in the right spot. Because guys that can shoot it, as you always always have said, they can shoot it. You know, so if you end up on a team that has Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen on it, and all you got to do is float around to the corner behind the three-point line and watch the defense collapse on them and then get an open pass and shoot open shots, you're going to be a star, you know, like Paxson and like Kerr, you know. and and But if you end up on bad teams, you are every bit the shooter. I mean, Legler's bigger than those guys. I mean, hell, Legler was... Tim Legler was every bit of 6'4", 6'5". What was Kerr, 6'2"? 
Paxson probably was in that 6-4 range. Um, but Legler could have easily, had he been in his career, because remember, he played you know, during that era. If let's just say somehow, uh, you know, in 1992, 1993, somebody gets hurt and they pick up Legler off the street for a 10-day, and he starts knocking down threes on the regular and becomes that guy. Could have easily yeah. been that guy. And, Absolutely could have been that guy. And there are probably 30 to 50 guys that were in the league at that point or not in the league at that point because they didn't get the break and landing on just a team where you could, they, they could play that could have been, you know, Paxson or Kerr. Now, Kerr was a really good player, Kevin. too. It's a Paxson was a good player, Kevin. too. Yeah. Are you one of those guys? <laughs> no. Am I one of those guys in, in pickup weekend not, games? Not in the league. Not in the league. No, no, no. But but that's. But I can I can certainly on a much 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 lower level. I certainly understand the concept of being sort of the designated long range shooter. I've been in that position, you know, whether it was competitively or not, of being, you know, hey, he may not guard many people, but you cannot leave him open. So I, I have been in those positions, hoping to get Tommy even even at a very advanced stage, and in pickup games, I I'm always looking to play with a really good player that is a really good offensive player with the ball in his hands. I don't want to be on a team where I've got to have the ball in my hands to create my own shot. I want to be <laughs> at this age. I want to be the guy that you know goes down and 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 feigns defensive pressure, and then you know and then runs down to the other uh, three point line and just waits for a pass. Um, no, I'm, I mean I, I I love basketball and I love all aspects of it. But yeah, uh, Legler, there are probably fifty guys you know in his era that could have been Kerr, could have been Paxson. And it's really, I think, and someone can certainly correct me if you think I'm wrong on this, it's really one of those positions that is right place, right time, because there are so many people who are proficient, stone-cold shooters. Now, being able to do it in a live environment, I'm not talking about a guy walking off the street, I'm talking about guys that played college basketball at a high level that never made it into the NBA because they didn't find that right place, right time. You know, that perfect fit. Um, but guys like Paxson and Kerr did, and you know, J.J. Reddick's continued to find the, those those spots over the years, although Reddick's a good all-around player. Um, he's probably not a good example of that. But uh, anyway, um, okay, what else do you have today? That's all I got, boss. Is that it? Didn't we have something yeah. else we were going to talk about? Oh, we were going to talk about uh, Haskins. Ron Rivera's comments and Haskins. All right, let's uh, get to that right after I tell you about Hydrant. All right, top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, or meditation. But not everybody's got the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Did you know that 75% of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated? We're suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. It doesn't have to be that way. If you want to kick the coffee habit, but you're worried about your energy levels, Avoid the morning sluggishness and the midday slump. Make sure you're hydrated with Hydrant. 
All right, Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets. You just mix them with water. They've got a, a mix of the four essential electrolytes, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. All of those help you hydrate quickly. It's backed by research developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no artificial sweeteners, no synthetic colors. The formula is vegan. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com slash Sheehan. Use my promo code S-H-E-E-H-A-N and you'll get 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com slash Sheehan. All right, let's finish up by talking just quickly about Ron Rivera and Dwayne Haskins who held uh, Zoom conference calls with uh, reporters yesterday. Ryan Kerrigan's doing one today, so is Terry McLaurin. Rivera opened it up, Tommy, yesterday, and I don't know if you heard it or if you read um, the quotes, but describing the organization's um, activeness in Black Lives Matter. Uh, he said at one point, I've been tasked with leading this entire organization, and I've always believed in the mantra that actions speak louder than words. And he listed all of the things that the Redskins as an organization were doing. That was after he opened up. The opening statement from Rivera was, two weeks ago, a man sworn to protect us murdered George Floyd in the streets of Minneapolis. Um, He got into all of the things that the Redskins are doing. He said, I wanted to share with you our internal plan that will allow our entire organization to come together, let their voices be heard, and ultimately take action. We've created a town hall program led by six members of our organization, Doug Williams, Dr. Monica Page, our team uh, psychologist, our senior director of player personnel, Malcolm uh, Malcolm Blacken, our team chaplain, uh, and one of our coaches, Jennifer King, who's a a new coach on this staff, formerly a police officer before shifting into the coaching world. Um, And he said everyone in the organization from the front office and players to ticket sales reps can take part in these discussions. These town halls will give our employees a chance to share experiences, build camaraderie with colleagues that they may not have yet crossed paths with, and ultimately come up with actionable items that we can do to make our communities safer for people of color. I've spoken at length with Mr. Snyder about these topics, and he's agreed to kickstart this program with a $250,000 donation. We've also started the Washington Redskins Black Engagement Network, a network that will work to strengthen the Redskins' commitment to black employees through professional development, career management, mentoring, networking, and inclusive work environment and community, outre- uh, community outreach. So, um, He spent three minutes, and and he ended the statement with, Black Lives Matter. We can't be afraid to say it. I will say it again, Black Lives Matter. First of all, you know, this is what I think people um, in this movement want others that haven't been a part of the movement to understand, that there's a discourse, there's a conversation to be had, but there's, there's action to be taken. And he described all of it yesterday. The Redskins are, 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 are trying to be, become active. And I thought it was important. You know, we haven't heard this from every organization so far. We haven't heard from owners around the National Football League after Goodell's statement uh, over the weekend. Um, he's, the, he's the voice. He's the lead voice in the organization. We found that out on Thanksgiving. Um, and 
uh, he spelled it out in terms of what the Redskins are going to do to not only talk about it, but be active in it. What would you make of it? I thought it was very smart, uh, very un-Redskins-like, but another sign about a changing culture uh, within the organization. I thought it was really smart to seemingly, like you said, get ahead of this thing and be proactive uh, as well as reacting to the circumstances that are going on around the country. Uh, It seems like a well-thought-out approach to uh, making sure the organization is on the right side of this issue and on the right side of what their fans may want as well. I thought it was smart. I thought it was very well done. I think it's also one of those things that right now um, your players, your employees, have to know in this environment that you are, you know, you're a part of what they're going through. Um, I don't know. I can't give you a rundown team by team and what every owner's done and what every coach has said. I know a lot of coaches and a lot of players and a lot of leaders and a lot of different organizations have made profound statements and have promised action here recently. I also know that off of the Goodell statement over the weekend that there wasn't like this rush from all 32 owners to say, we're behind this. You know, I, have we heard from Jerry yet? Jerry's been silent. Um, you know, Dan Snyder, with the exception of Ron Rivera telling us that he made a $250,000 you know, donation to this town hall concept that the Redskins are starting, um, I don't know that we've really heard that. We've, we've had an organizational statement. Anyway, and I, I could be wrong about that. I, I think it's really important right now that the players on these teams – are, you know, they're demanding more than silence. Silence to a lot of people right now um, is an implication of something uh, something not right. Um, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that at all. I think people can handle this in their own way, and there are a lot of people that may have been taking action on this front for many years and are not a look-at-me kind of person. You know, there's a lot of people out there that want to make some sort of contribution and then also take a picture of themselves making that contribution and put it on social media. There are also a lot of people that don't need that and and are active and are going to continue to be active, uh, but don't necessarily um, want to bring attention to themselves for that. Uh, but anyway, I think in the sports world, with respect uh, to, you know, NFL teams right now, especially... You know, it's probably this. This was probably very smart. Um, and it, b- by the way, it comes from you know one of the few minority coaches in the NFL, and and yes. and a minority coach who is the face and voice of this organization right now. Period. I agree with all that. Let's see how this holds up when the the, the horrible virus that's coming hits. Oh my god. And that's the September October presidential elections. Oh, okay. That's the virus I'm talking about. That I was just gonna say. what we're seeing now mm-hmm. is going to be nothing compared to September and October in this country, where choosing sides means picking a candidate, and 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 and, and there'll be debates in locker rooms since silence is no longer an option, and one side will be pitted against the other because the president will make sure of that. That's his M.O., and he, 
and he'll be like a caged animal in September and October. We haven't seen the worst of what Donald Trump can deliver in, in terms of, in terms of, of campaigning. And uh, I just think that these NFL locker rooms, uh, if baseball comes back, baseball clubhouses, I think they're both going to be tested uh, to this issue of silence is no longer an option. Really? And where do you stand come November 3rd? And that's where I think, just like I said to you the other day with dissenting opinion, um, that's where I think we will get pushback. And it may have nothing to do with somebody who supports Trump over Biden. It may just have to do with this is what we call in our country a secret ballot. You know, we have the right to keep our our voting choice secret. Um, and th- the reason for that is because, and the reason that we, you know, adopted an Australia, it was called the Australian ballot, the secret ballot, the, based on my uh, memories of, of U.S. history um, in, in uh, both high school and college, is that no one could influence voters through intimidation, through blackmailing, you know, f- uh, through, you know, buying of votes. This is why you have a secret ballot in the system. So, uh, secret ballot in this is in, in our system. So you said the other day you worry that journalism's been you know you were depressed over the state of jur- journalism. Are you telling me that uh, our ballots aren't going to be secret? That we're going to have to actually post a photo on Instagram of who we voted for? What I'm saying is, in NFL locker rooms, teammates will call on other teammates. That, that these these discussions will take place. And if somebody says and it's none of your business. That's not going to be good enough. Then, no, that won't be good enough. And so what will that mean? It, it will mean you'll see a lot of division. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of unity. You'll see a lot of division. Do you think that there and was... a lot of volatility. What's the last election um, where maybe, you know, the 68 election, Nixon-Humphrey, but, you know, sports were different back then, but not baseball, not, you know, certainly baseball was... When was the last election where you think maybe there was a dynamic in a locker room between players that, uh, you know, you had, based on who you voted for, um, you were judged? Uh, I'd say probably 72. Nixon McGovern? Yeah. I'd I'd say that that, that's when 68, you really did not get in, in, in sports locker rooms, you didn't get... The movement on the streets did not did not seep into the locker rooms yet in '68. By '72, it, it had taken hold in small little pockets uh, in terms of the war of the Vietnam War and things like that. It was more prevalent in sports locker rooms in '72. Was it a dramatic difference? No. Most I'm sure most players were voted for Nixon, but there was much more of a there was more of a division than there was in 68, and probably the most that there's ever been since then. You know, here's the thing about baseball players and football players and all these guys. They're millionaires. It shouldn't surprise anyone that millionaires would support Donald Trump. Yeah, you get more money back. Yeah, well, you've said that that before, and you're right, you know, in baseball locker rooms in particular. Yes. You know, what did McGovern win? Did McGovern, he won like one state. Yeah, I didn't say, <laughs> I didn't say it was a contested election. 
I just said, I mean, if you're looking for a time where I think there was debate in locker rooms about where you stood and how you were judged, I think it was in 72. It took that long for the 60s to wind up into sports locker rooms. I, I bet that's true. I mean, I'm just thinking back through every general election. I, I can't imagine the country, you know, um, be, now it was obviously June of 72 where you had the, the Watergate break-in. So you ended up having the election a few months later in November, but that, it really hadn't gotten rolling yet in terms of the public's understanding of what happened. Right. Um, but, uh, but Nixon was clearly one of those polarizing figures, even though he won in a, in an electoral landslide in 72. Yes. Um, but I, I just, you know, this, this, this gets into the conversation we were having the other day, Tommy, which is there are going to be, in my opinion, some people say, I don't care that you need to know who I'm voting for. Um, that's not th- that's not our structure. That's not my right is to keep my ballot secret, and I have the right to vote for whomever I want to vote for, and I have the right not to tell you who I'm going to vote for. You're going to have to understand that. That's my belief. Your belief is I need to tell you who I'm voting for, and it be- and it better be Joe Biden, um, or we're going to have a problem. And what I'm telling you is it's none of your business who I'm voting for. Just know that I'm a decent person, um, but I also believe in in the right to keep my my uh, my voting my ballot secret. I, I I just I you're probably right in terms of there's going to be you know who you voting for. We need to know are you on our side or are you on the other side? And and the reason in this particular case, I I get it, I understand it, that there is this belief that if you voted for Trump or if you are going to support Trump again, you are a racist. You know, yeah. and it's not, and, and it's that, not, that's, it's not that's debatable. Be, There's no be. argument in, 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 no. so, um, but it still doesn't entitle anybody to demand that you take a picture of who you voted for and I agree, to prove but, it. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the mob and the bullies are ruling the roost. Yeah. There's going to be some, so. there's going to be some pushback on those bullies, Tommy. There's yeah. going to be some okay. pushback on that. Let be, me, uh, as we've said, ahead. we believe it's the majority. Yes. Let me leave. Uh, are we done? Yeah, I don't have anything else today. I mean, I don't think there was well, anything I else. Want, I wanted to wrap up the podcast with this. Okay. From Dwayne Haskins. Two hours ago. I think oh, it's boy. an interesting uh, tweet, you know, and uh, I retweeted it myself without comment. Dwayne tweeted, I want to see all my guys win. Can't say that about most of you, though. I want to see all of my guys win. Can't say that about most of you, though? Yes. What's he referring to? I don't know. (laughs) I I don't know. Here it is. I want to see all my guys win. Can't say that about most of you, though. Okay. Does that mean he doesn't want to see most of us win? Or does that mean he thinks that most of us don't want to see his guys win? I have no idea. I actually don't. Well, pond, ponder that. Think about that. I honestly have no Brad interest. Hopper. I have no interest in pondering that. Seriously, none. And you know, I um, I don't follow <laughs> Dwayne on Twitter, but he pops up in my timeline all the time because he gets retweeted by a lot of the people that I do follow. 
And the one comment I would make based on his tweeting, because he attended those protests over the weekend downtown, is I actually thought some of his tweets were really thoughtful. And you know, yes, they were. And and here's the other thing too. I if I disagree with uh, anything, um, I, it doesn't mean that I haven't, on some level, been boy inspired's probably not the right word, but encouraged that young people in particular are active. You know, because they aren't always this generation. You know, there's a lot of, you know, on the phones, detached, um, you know, playing video games. I've seen it with my own kids over the years. But I, I think that there was an energy to what we've seen the last two weeks with young people. I think that I, it, was, um, it was nice to see that. It was nice to see the activism. Even if some of the things that were being chanted, I didn't necessarily totally agree with. I am for good cops. Um, I'm against bad cops. It's really that simple. I don't need to go any further. Uh, I'm for uh, law enforcement, not against law enforcement, but I'm for good law enforcement and quality and fair law enforcement, not unfair law enforcement. Um, so a lot of the things that were being protested, you know, I am not in complete agreement with. Um, but I still think a lot of the young players and a lot of the athletes that end up you know, showing up on our timelines were pretty thoughtful in some of their, uh, in some of their social media activity. You know what he's got to do? He's got to play well this year. He looks good. He's he, lost all that weight. He looks good. He's down. He looks he, good. He's been working hard. 237 at Ohio State. He's down to 218. He looks ripped. You know, that that tells me it does. If you're wondering, it tells me, you know, he's working. He's committed. Yes. It's better than seeing yes, him at 250. Um, yeah, absolutely. That, that's good news. Now, all he needs now is his good buddy Antonio Brown in camp to help continue with his development. And, you know, Ron uh, Rivera was asked about Antonio Brown, and he basically said about wide receiver and left tackle, he said, we've got young players, we're going to give young players a shot. He also sort of suggested that with no OTAs and no minicamp, it's a bit of a, of a, of, um, a disadvantage when you're new, which we've, uh, you know, it seems obvious, um, where you've got all these young players and you don't get to see them, so you may not find out until much later whether you feel they can play or not. I think that there's a veteran left tackle out there to be signed. Those of you that think that Antonio Brown, that he didn't um, yesterday eliminate the possibility of signing Antonio Brown, which he didn't when he was asked about it. But if you read you know, the entire quote or listen to it, they're not signing Antonio Brown. I will give you $100, Tommy, if they sign Antonio Brown. I'm not going to give That's all of our listeners $100, but I will give That's you... That's disappointing. <laughs> There's no chance Antonio Brown ends, here, uh, ends up here, even though it would be great for us. Yeah. <clears throat> Imagine all those people interested in the conversation about Antonio Brown wearing a Redskins uniform. Uh, anyway, I don't think it's going to happen. All right, what else? That's it for me. I'm done with you. That's it, boss. All right, everybody have a great day. I'll be back tomorrow. Don't forget the Team 980, theteam980.com. This show is available on an app as well. Have a great day.